Time marches on and leaves behind those who are not equipped for tomorrow. We cannot predict what will happen in the future, but we at Regent University aim to prepare you for it. With world-class professors in over 150 programs, the opportunities to find success in your field are many. So don't let tomorrow pass you by. The journey to your brightest future begins here. Visit regent.edu slash learn more. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate, a special coronavirus advocate, as we have been doing for the last uh, number of weeks. Tonight, in the first two segments, we're going to be talking to our good friend, State Representative Dave Greenspan, who's going to be updating us on what's going on in Columbus, Ohio, and the rest of the state of Ohio. Dave, thank you for joining us. Oh, Nick, as always, I appreciate being on. Thank you. Good. Uh, how are you and your family doing uh, with regard to the virus? Everybody healthy? Every, everybody here is healthy. We've been following the guidelines and, and uh, been able to, to stay healthy. Oh, well, that's so so good to hear. If uh, you can give us a quick update from the Columbus perspective, how are we doing in the state of Ohio with the virus? Well, I, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Since the last time we talked a month ago, obviously the order, it was a stay-at-home order, and, and at that point the economy was, was fundamentally shut down except for, quote-unquote, essential, essential uh, businesses. Since then, and the governor was very clear, he asked us if we wouldn't mind, you know, if we'd continue to stay at home. But if things got better by the by May 1st, he made a commitment that he would open up the economy. And, um, you know, whether it's a combination of things we've learned about this virus in conjunction with the fact that, um, you know, Ohioans listened uh, to the governor insofar as the, the, at that time the stay-at-home order. It's a different order today. But um, we were able to, to, to flatten the curve, as the popular phrase goes. But we were able to do it in such a way that if you look at our neighboring states, whether it be Pennsylvania or Michigan, uh, we actually were able to keep our cases, hospitalizations, intensive care admittances, and our deaths significantly lower than our neighboring states. And a lot of that has to do with the fact, you know, as we talked about last month, the governor asked uh, or did four things. Number one, he canceled the Arnold, which were 80,000 participants from 100, 000, uh, from 100 countries. Um, the bars and restaurants uh, were unable to participate in St. Patrick's Day which, as we're seeing in other states, those states that did not do that saw a spike in cases three to four weeks after St. Patrick's Day. The university is making the decision not to uh, open up after the kids got were to come back from spring break was, uh, I believe, instrumental in keeping the number of cases down because, you know, when I was younger, I went to spring break. I went to school about an hour and a half north of Panama City and Fort Walton Beach. That's where we went. But now today's kids go all over the world. And, you know, if you can only imagine those students coming back from, from their travels and, um, you know, possibly exposing other students. And we've seen in congregate living situations like dorms and, and tightly confined areas that there is an increased risk of transmission. So that was one of the key components, I believe, that kept our spread down. And then the the issue with the in-person election, um, you know, one of the main issues, but by us not having the in-person election, uh, one of the main issues we were seeing the weekend before the election, and we talked about this last week, was we had a significant amount of poll workers calling off to the point that there was a significant concern, and Lieutenant and the um, Secretary of State and the governor touched on this, 
there was a concern about being able to provide a safe and secure election with the amount of people that were calling off in combination with the closed uh, working or, or congregate environment of in-person voting, that too um, could have led to a spike in cases, as was evident in Michigan and Wisconsin, who did not cancel their in-person their in-person elections, and they saw spikes in their cases after that. So we've done everything the governor asked us to do. He said, "Let's keep, let's let's flatten the curve," which which was evidenced by the fact that we didn't see spikes. You know, we saw a day spike here or there, but we didn't see a trend of a of a spike occurring. And with that said, the governor made a commitment that May 1st he would start opening up the economy, which he did. And as we sit here today on on the 17th of uh, of, of May, most of the economy, 93-plus percent of the economy, is either at, at, available to go back to work or will by, between now and the end of the month. So, and still more announcements to come in the, in the coming weeks on some of those, those other areas. So we've seen we've seen a flattening of the curve. We're, we, we've seen um, people being respectful of the governor's orders. There is a lot of, and I hear it, there's there are a lot of folks who believe that um, we're not opening up the economy quick enough. You know, to that point, I would I would just say that as the governor was, was said he would open it up May 1st, he's done that. We're actually ahead of the federal protocols. If we remember, the president and, and the CDC didn't want you to even enter phase one of opening up your economy unless you had 14 days of declining numbers, not cases, because we're going to see an increase in cases because we're testing more people. Um, but where we were in hospitalization, intensive care and deaths, he, the, the federal man, their federal standard was don't go into any phase, initial phase or subsequent phases, till you have 14 days. Well, we, we've not had 14 days in Ohio with declining numbers ever. So if that protocol was to be adhered to, we would still be, um, you know, under a quote-unquote stay-at-home order and no businesses except those deemed essential would be open. And so we're not in violation of federal orders because there were none issued, but we, but we are operating with, as, as the federal government is asking, the president is asking for us to operate in as our state sees appropriate, and, and that's what we're doing. With, with regard to where we were a couple of months ago when we were talking about this, we know that from a science perspective, the virus hasn't changed. The virus is still acting like a virus. It spreads like a virus and it makes people sick, sometimes in different ways, like a virus. But over these last couple of months, we've been learning an awful lot. Uh, what, what have we been learning and what have we been applying here in the state that we can actually see some concrete yeah. changes? Well, I, I, it's important to note that the, the protocol that Ohio operated under was the same protocol that almost every other state operated under, the same protocol the federal government was operating, or same data, um, as well as other countries. And so when, when you know, this started and the government's, government's plural started making these determinations on what to do and how to respond, if you go back to mid-March, you know, the projections were at the federal level, we were going to have a million, 1.2 million deaths in this country. We're sitting today at about 90,000. Um, the projection is they hit 100,000 by, by June 1st, which is only about a week and a half away. So, or two weeks away. So there, there still is risk. But what we've learned is that um, it, it is, it is highly communicable. 
but mm-hmm. those who are generally under 65 and who are in good health or don't have any underlying health issues, although they may be infected and might be affected um, and might show some signs of illness, um, by and large, they recover. Uh, it's those that are in congregate living in situations, jails, prisons, nursing homes, assisted living homes, community homes like that, where we're seeing the transmission is significant. Our prison population, it's over 80%. Our nursing homes are, are high as well. But our nursing homes and assisted living facilities, we're seeing that nearly 40% of the deaths that are reported are reported out of those facilities. So what is what does that tell us that we didn't know before? Well, we suspect it's highly transmittable. Not only just we collectively, it was highly transmittable. We're seeing that in congregate living environments. We're the 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 the, the belief was that if you were had an underlying illness that it significantly impacted you, that is still true. What we know now that we probably didn't know before was that if you're under 60, 65 and healthy, the the the, the life-threatening impacts are not what was being seen in Italy and Spain as an example. I don't. We can't rely on China and any other data. So we look at what's going on in Europe. Remember, 184 of 193 countries were impacted by this. So we we know more now than we did before. We know that we can each take uh, a sense of personal responsibility uh, to help prevent the spread. We will see here soon as more people get out and more people are around one another. Remember, we've effectively been, you know, exercising, you know, safe distancing by respecting the stay-at-home order. Uh, which has kept us largely apart uh, as we start to go back out. And we'll see here, you know, in effect, you know, starting um, the Monday, uh, the Tuesday after Memorial Day, pools will be able to start opening. Summer camps are going to start, you know, and and daycares are going to start back up around June 1st, May 31st. So we're going to start to see people out and about. And, you know, we have the ability to control the spread, just like we do with the flu or any other transmittable uh, virus or illness. And if we do it appropriately, um, we will be able to keep the spread down. And, and you know, in, in listening to the governor, he doesn't want this to, to keep the state uh, in the current position that it's in. No, longer no, he, that, he that does leave necessary. We're, we're talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan uh, from Columbus, Ohio, concerning the COVID-19 situation and what the state of Ohio is experiencing and what they're doing about it. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back after these words. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. Don't go away. Welcome back to Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And we're here tonight with State Representative David Greenspan telling us about COVID-19 and how the state of Ohio is sparing and, and what the state of Ohio is doing about it. Uh, Representative Greenspan, thank you again for joining us as always. Thank you. Thanks again, Nick. I appreciate it. Uh, we're talking about COVID-19, which we've been talking about, uh, it seems like, forever now. But uh, the state of Ohio is engaged, and the state of Ohio seems to be doing well. You know, we're all suffering the same way across the country. Uh, But with regard to how we're doing compared to other states, how are we stacking up compared to our our neighbors? 
Well, yeah, we compared to Michigan and Pennsylvania, significantly better. Their their death tolls in the three to five thousand range. Uh, you know, uh, other states, obviously New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. You know, it's hard. You know, to look at those because of their concentration of, of people and how close they are to one another. So we we've done a, a very good job um, in Ohio in in addressing the issue early on, and I think the residents and the people of Ohio have done a good job. And, and keeping the number of cases down. So from that respect, we, we are we are better off than, than most of our other surrounding states. Well, that's, that is good. But, you know, with the economy being frozen for as long as we've had it frozen, for four to six weeks, uh, we're now opening up the economy. I think you mentioned that we have, uh, what, over 90% of businesses open here in Ohio, or 93% and more right. opening. The uh, situation is, how do we actually make people feel comfortable? I understand uh, that's around 75 to 78% of the people polled still feel uncomfortable to go out. Yeah. How do we get people to feel more comfortable? And, and how are we doing without having a criminal offense by not wearing a mask? How can we get people to show respect for people who are at higher risk to get them yeah. to wear the mask? And feel comfortable in coming out into the economy. Well, and and that that's part of these protocols that you're seeing, you know, put in place is to is to encourage and and uh, enhance consumer confidence, right? We want to make sure people feel safe and secure when they go out, and you know, and that's the reason you know that 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 our government and other you know state government, and other governments across the the country, other state governments are putting certain protocols in place. And obviously, you know, you know, you can look at wearing a mask. Um, my wife and I made the decision to wear a mask. There are others who, who are making the decision not to. And from my perspective, that's a personal decision. Um, I, I wear this for two reasons. Number one is to, is to not participate in contributing to the spread, but also to reduce whatever risk I can, in and not contracting it. Um, look, we realize that these masks are not going to keep you 100% safe. Um, but any any deterrent that you wear um, very well may provide some some level of security to you and others, but also should start to instill some form of confidence that that you know people are you know that we're doing what we can. And and I don't look. There's been an argument about folks being shamed into not wearing if you're not wearing a mask. I I, I don't believe that's the right path to go down. Um, we all rec- recognize today what the risks are with this. I, I would, you know, people I ask people to determine what risk is acceptable to you, but also be mindful that we want to keep our population safe and healthy. And uh, you know, that's a protocol we're seeing across the board in other states. And and uh, you know, personal responsibility is is a, is is a major component of this. And you know, if people want to, dem- you know, they should demonstrate the personal responsibility that they believe is appropriate. Um, I, I happen to believe, like I said, I wear my mask for those reasons, and, and some people don't, and, and that they, they understand the risk. Well, I, I know that uh, when, when I go out and about, it's incumbent upon everyone to understand what the masks do and what they don't do and how the virus itself is transmitted. Uh, because when you're walking around outside alone, I, I don't see any point having a mask on if you're not going to be near anybody to uh, contaminate. 
On the other hand, if you're in close quarters with a lot of strangers, you're going to be there for over 10, 15 minutes with these people, and you don't know them. Uh, as a sign of mutual respect, people should have masks on when they're in that situation. So uh, as the doctors say, when you're asking for an opinion, they say it depends. And I suppose yeah. it depends on when to wear the mask. But right now, there's no sure. law that says if you're in a store, you have to have a mask or you can be arrested. We're not doing that in Ohio. Is that right? There, there, in, in one of the orders, there is, I believe, if businesses are not following the protocol, that there, there is a um, $750, up to $750 fine in 90 days of jail. Um, that is criminal. We, yeah, we actually, in the House, in, in a bill this pa uh, last week, um, reduced that to a $100 to $150 fine uh, and no jail time. It's, it's an interesting argument, right? We, we talk all the time about jail reform and sentencing reform and, and you know, nonviolent individuals not going to jail. Um, and we're talking jail, not prison, but jail. And this was a time to respect that. And at the same time, if we know jails are, are highly contagious environments, highly infectious environments, why would we want to put somebody into that position when, when actually the contrary is happening across the country um, where, where you know, states and the federal government are releasing uh, individuals who are at high risk from jail, from prisons, in order to reduce the amount of um, possible spread. So um, there, there is there is a component right now. If, if you if a business fails to adhere to the specifics of their industry standards, um, I'm not aware in Ohio yet of anybody being charged with that. Uh, and clearly, I'm not aware of anybody going to jail. But, but this um, would be the this would be the businesses though, not the individuals who are, are shoppers. I, I was in a grocery store uh, recently. And the employees or the cashiers are behind a plastic panel, and uh, they're wearing a mask. So they're protecting us shoppers mm -hmm. from them. But if the shoppers are coming in without uh, a mask on, they're putting the employees at risk. And, and there's, I, I suppose the only thing we have to say is that we have to basically recognize this potential and then extend a common courtesy to all those who are out there. Well, yeah. Yeah, and some, somebody brought up a good point to me yesterday, and they said, you know, if masks don't provide any protection, and I believe we can openly acknowledge that they provide some, to what extent we don't know, but they do provide some, then why is it that healthcare professionals, doctors, dentists, that you go into the emergency room, you go to get your teeth cleaned, that those healthcare professionals pre-COVID, pre-this time, have, are wearing masks? And I believe they wear that to protect themselves from contracting something that one of their patients may have, or from themselves unwittingly, hopefully unwittingly, passing something on to their patients. So the medical community for some time has believed by practice that masks do provide some level of protection. But I don't think anybody fully expects that wearing a mask is 100% gonna protect someone from getting the infection or spreading it, but it is a barrier. And when you compound that with the, the social distancing protocols of six feet, the hand washing, some of the others. These are all intended not to be the sole aspect of this that will prevent the spread, but in combination significantly is able to reduce the spread. True, true. Well, you know, it happens in the next couple of segments, we're going to be talking to a dentist, uh, Dr. Carl Hedgie, 
uh, who's going to be talking about dentistry and how that is part of their whole practice, and it has been for years. They've been wearing PPE, personal protection equipment, to protect themselves from all of the patients who come through every single day and open their mouths and spread bacteria and viruses. And uh, they they have this down to a science. So we're going to hear about the details on that, and it does work. So uh, hopefully mm-hmm. we're going to just uh, learn how to live with the coronavirus, this particular brand of the coronavirus. Anything right. optimistic we have to look forward to that you see trends that are moving in a good direction for us? I do. I do. I, I, I see, obviously, that, you know, summer camps, talk about our youth real quick, summer camps and, and sporting events are starting to open up. So our children are going to be able to, you know, play sports and go to camp and, and do those types of activities, you know, within reason, you know, the protocols are out there. But one of the things that was really encouraging to me is the, the um, there was a survey done, a poll, and Cleveland.com released it earlier in the week about restaurants reopening and how comfortable people felt about going out to restaurants. And 51%, that's over half, just over half, felt comfortable in going out to restaurants when restaurants reopened. That number is encouraging to me because that demonstrates that people are willing and have confidence with the proper protocols that they're going to be safe when they go out. And that was encouraging. Well, let's, let's hope they all continue to do this safely. And let's hope that by next month when we have you back on, we're not going to see a huge spike in going on other than what's being reported uh, because we're doing more testing. But anyway, this is an ongoing situation. We'll be reporting it. And uh, Representative Dave Greenspan, thank you so much for sharing with us, as you do every month, what's going on from the point of view of Columbus, Ohio. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK, The Advocate. We'll be back after these words, so don't go away. Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. Uh, as we're trying to get from a month of COVID-19, uh, we have to get back to business in a very, very safe way. And one of the things we need to do is catch up on our, our medical and dental requirements. With us tonight, Dr. Carl Hedgie, one of our sponsors here at uh, The Advocate, is going to talk to us about uh, the COVID-19 world and going to the dentist. Carl, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Nick. I hope I hope this is helpful for your listeners. Oh, I'm sure it will be because uh, everyone's been sort of locked down and we're slowly unlocking and starting to get out into the world. And uh, we want to get out there besides just taking care of business and our routine uh, medical and dental needs, but we want to do it safely. Uh, tell me, uh, you know, Carl, how has the COVID-19 requirements affected the dental practice? Well, what do you have to do? now to comply with safety standards so people don't get uh, pick up COVID-19 when they come to see a dentist? Well, I think really an interesting thing to understand about this is, is that dentistry was not shut down because of the risk either to the patients from us or of the patients to us. Um, the reason it was shut down was just because of the concern for just this mass flow of, of, of COVID-19 patients into the hospitals and that we were consuming, you know, some of the PPP 
PPE equipment, you know, the personal right. protective equipment. And that's really the reason we were shut down. Um, and it wasn't, you know, for our safety or the safety of the patients. It was just to make sure we didn't run out of supplies for the hospitals when they were more needed. You know, I think another thing it's important to understand is that we've been, you know, we're dealing in the oral cavity. We have been uh, under scrutiny for a number of other diseases that are really much more deadly, much more threatening. Uh, going back into the 90s, that includes everything from hepatitis to HIV to tuberculosis. So we have had standards that have been established by um, the, the, the CDC, by the American Dental Association, that we've been incorporating really since the 1980s even. That, and so really, we, we really have incorporated a lot more things, as much as anything else, just to help patients feel more comfortable. You know, but the thing to understand is that, that you know, most dentists now, they're following even previous regulations, you know, they're really quite safe. But having said that, we have incorporated a lot of new things, both for the comfort of our, our, our patients as well as our staff. You know, we want to make sure everybody everybody is really comfortable with doing what needs to be done. Well, very good, because uh, since March with COVID-19, what we've been listening to, and I mean we, the general public, we've been listening to how terrifying this is. If you get it, it's almost a death sentence. So. I think everybody has been tuned up to such a high pitch. Uh, I don't think we stop and think about the fact that um, a practice, like a dental practice, has been dealing with uh, communicable diseases for years. And uh, with that, is there anything else? We still know that the virus is a very, very serious virus, if you get it. Uh, In your practice, have you seen many people around with it? No, I have yet, interestingly, I have yet to... Fortunately, I've been very blessed. No one, no one that I know, no friends, no relatives have contact, contracted it. Also kind of interesting, to my knowledge, there hasn't been a single case of a dentist acquiring uh, COVID infection in a dental office or of having spread it in a, in a dental office. And I could be wrong. I mean, it, but it, it's the kind of thing in our community, if something happens, like there was a case back in the HIV period when a dentist out in California somewhere contracted HIV, and it was all over the place. So something, it's one of those things where if you're not hearing anything in our, in our, you know, from the American Dental Association and from our, 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 our boards and things, we're pretty safe to say that no one, to our knowledge at least, has really been affected by this within a dental environment. So that's a reassuring thing. That's very reassuring to us. Now, now I noticed that you sent over to me a list of, uh, or at least a copy of your policy on dealing with the different uh, types of risk situations when someone yep. comes to a dental office. And, and I would assume that the same list of risk applies whether it's COVID-19 or the flu or even the common cold. Uh, but uh, what, if just for our educational purposes, what are these different risks that people are going into when they go into a dental office? Well, I think the, the biggest risk in a dental office is because, as we know, the, the COVID-19 virus is transmitted through aerosol, through uh, you know, basically saliva. And obviously, we work in the world of saliva. And certain you procedures sure do. that we do, yeah, certain procedures that we do tend to aerosolize that, which basically means, you know, it, it, it causes it to, to fume up into the air even though you can't see it. And so those procedures typically involve in a dental office, if you're having your teeth cleaned, you know, we, we love to use our ultrasonic units and we have these little, like, little, little mini sandblasters that uh, do a wonderful job at removing stain. And those, unfortunately, really cause a, a, a very high introduction of, of whatever's in the patient's mouth into the environment. And so we have stopped doing that. We've gone back to the old-fashioned way of just using a, a little round cup and, you know, hand instruments. 
Also, we understand that when we use like a high-speed handpiece, and that would be like the drill people would normally think of for like drilling fillings and, you know, drilling crowns and things, that that has the... So when we do those procedures, because certainly we still need to incorporate those, we need to um, take on extra protection. And so what we've done, you know, I feel like sometimes when we go in to do a simple little filling, we almost look like we're going in there to do open-heart surgery. You know, it, it's like patients are like, you know, wow, because, you know, you have your gowns on, you have your face mask on, you have your head coverings on. But we've, we've incorporated um, air purification systems that, that are able to purify the air immediately around the patient and also kill the bacteria. We're also using a number of, of um, things. Interestingly, one of the products that I became aware of just recently, which is very interesting, is a, a, a substance called hypochlorous acid. It's a, and it's a, it's a, basically, it's a very weak acid, and we're using it in a fogger. And like you know, like you use for fogging uh, bugs on, on in our vegetable gardens and things. And it's an extremely right. um, effective antibacterial and antiviral agent. Yeah, it's completely non-toxic. It's very safe to use. I mean, it, it, it's, so we're incorporating, interestingly, even though we should have maybe been doing these things before, this has kind of prompted us to do things that maybe we should have been doing before. So it's, it's actually been a very good kind of a blessing in disguise for us. I think it's kind of, you know, we're, we're trying to find the, those, those products that are very safe, very easy, and economical to use, and we found some good ones. Well, when someone comes into the dental office now, what will they see that's different? Uh, will there be people waiting in the waiting room or...? Good, good uh, question. That's it. Right. Uh, and every office is going to be a little bit different. The recommendation is that patient, only patients are, are allowed into the office. In my office, they actually wait in their car. Unfortunately, my parking lot for my office is immediately outside of my office. And so when they get to the office, they will call in. Donna, my office uh, manager, will call them into the office, let them in. She will immediately ask them a series of questions, kind of like if you've gone to your doctor or to a hospital, they, the standard questions, if you've, have you been around anyone with COVID? Have you had a cough? Have you lost your appetite? Or all these questions. And then we take their temperature, and then we take them immediately into the treatment rooms. So there's, there basically there is no one in the, um, in the reception area or the waiting room anymore. It's just kind of a, an empty room now. Just sort of a pass-through as they come in. and Exactly, right exactly. But they'll also see, you know, we, we put up, I'm sure your your uh, listeners have seen that at most grocery stores they have the the barriers, the, the plexiglass barriers. So those are all put also put up between the entranceway. And so whenever the patient is dealing even with the front desk with with the uh, receptionist, that there's a, a physical barrier between them and her. And so uh, those are the things that would look visibly different. Now, other than just the things like you know the air purifiers being around, the fogging going on, and things like that. So there's. Nothing alarming. It's it's just a little bit different. For the workers uh, in the office, uh, does it seem much different to them, or are they all uh, accustomed now to to what's going on with the higher uh, sensitivity toward transmission of, of, of virus? Well, well, you know, one of the most important things for me, you know, during this time that we were off, was was creating, you know, getting things, products, uh, procedures. That would make everyone feel comfortable, including the staff. We have now been back since last Tuesday, so we're in our second week. And, you know, the first couple of days, few days, we're kind of stumbling around and we're, you know, where, how do, what do we do with this? What do we do with that? But we're in our second week now, and it's almost like this has almost become our new normal. And, um, you know, one of the great things is that the, the staff members, they really are really comfortable because they know how hard we're trying. And we're all, you know, if they have any concerns, if they have anything they want, they get it. So 
fortunately, they're very comfortable with what we are doing. And now we're kind of getting used to the little routine, the different routines of, you know, not having two patients in at the same time and all those little things, the little things we had to work out. So they're, they're doing really well. And I have such a great staff, though. And um, so, no, I'm very blessed, and we're doing, they're doing really well. So using the level of personal protection equipment and the sanitation, uh, you're, this is not only a barrier for COVID-19, but it's a barrier for almost anything else as well, it sounds like. Right, absolutely. And, and you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I've been, as you know, we're, we're, Nick and I are both over 60 years old, okay? And I've been in <laughs> yes. practice, I've been in practice for, since 1978, and I have missed, in that total time, I've missed three days for being ill in that whole time. Um, and so I'm fortunately, I'm blessed with, I guess, a very good immune system. And perhaps it's partly because just, you know, we're constantly um, um, somewhat exposed to this from our patients. And so um, we're, we're, we're doing really well. And, and again, um, oh, very good. Um, and, very and, good. And, and so these other things, though, and I, I've never, fortunately, thank God, I've never had a patient come back to me and say, you know, I went to your office and I got the flu afterwards, you know, or I had this, and I've never had that happen. And so I think that even what we've been doing in the past has been quite adequate, but just, you know, a little bit extra isn't a bad thing. And if it makes everyone no, feel a little not. better... Let me, let me interrupt for a moment. Sure. Bring out of time here. Uh, we're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here. We're going to come back with Dr. Carl Hedge and talk about dentistry in the COVID era. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland, to The Advocates. This is our final segment for tonight. We're talking about dentistry and uh, catching up on our dental care that we need that we've been putting off for a couple of months here due to the COVID-19. We're talking to uh, uh, Dr. Carl Hedgie, a, a dentist and also sponsor of The Advocate. We thank him for joining us tonight. Dr. Hedgie, thank you for joining us. You're more than welcome. Thank you for having me. You know, as we're all on pins and needles over this uh, COVID-19, that's all we seem to think about from morning to night. And maybe some of us wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. But uh, life has to go on, and we're, we're coming out and um, catching up on some of those things that we canceled over the last couple of months, and we're talking about dentistry. And as we were talking in the last segment about dentistry, um, you guys in dentistry have been dealing with open mouths and saliva and aerosol uh, droplets from the human mouth for years. I mean, that's part of the business. And uh, when we, we talk about uh, what a patient's obligation is, when a patient shows up and schedules an appointment, how much should the patient be telling the doctor or the scheduler about uh, how they're feeling and what kind of question checklist maybe uh, they're going to be expected to answer? Right. Well, I, I can just share what, what we do is when a patient calls for an appointment, at the time of that initial call, um, my receptionist will go over a questionnaire, and I, I won't ask all the questions. Because I won't go over all of them because there's about 20 of them she asked, but things like do you have a fever or felt feverish, do you have a cough, shortness of breath, and so on. Have you been exposed to anyone over the last 14 days who has the, the infection? So she goes through a series of questions at the time of the appointment. Then she goes over those questions again the day before the appointment, and then she goes over those questions with them at the time of their appointment. So initially, when they come in, 
there, you know, they're, they're waiting in the parking lot. When they're called in, she will ask those questions with, with them, and then she will take their temperature and immediately escort them to the, uh, to the, uh, to the actual treatment room. But the one thing to keep in mind that I mentioned to you a little bit during the break there was the fact that even back in the 80s, our, our mission has always been to treat every patient, every single patient, as if they are infected. Not only, not only with uh, the coronavirus, but we expect like everyone has hepatitis, that everyone has HIV. So the standards by which we treat patients is, is kind of like guilty until proven innocent, and we really can't prove them innocent, or we can't prove that they, they don't have these problems. So no matter, you know, no matter how benign or how healthy they appear, we still proceed with the assumption that they are infected, not just with the, you know, the coronavirus, but with these other pathogens that we've dealt with for many, many years. You know, when we talk about the different procedures, talking about the high-risk procedures, is teeth cleaning one of the highest uh, yes. risk? Yes, it is. And, and but specifically, we mentioned in the earlier segment was the fact that that with the ultrasonic, and if, I think most of your listeners probably know that's the thing that kind of kind of buzzes and says, you know, and they they use that to remove the tartar or the calculus from the teeth. Right, right. And also the little we call a profi jet, which is like a little mini, almost like sandblaster that is used to remove um, stain and, and, and soft debris from the teeth, those are extremely, extremely um, dangerous, I guess you would use the word, in, in, in the fact that they take a lot of whatever's in the patient's mouth and they just spread it all over the place. You know, I mean, they're just a, there's a zone of whatever bacteria, whatever microorganisms are in that patient's mouth as a result of those two um, methods of treatment are, are you know, are, are, they're, they're spread all over the place. So that's why we, we've banned that from our office. You know, we're only using, you know, hand instruments and the old low speed, which have, you know, very, very, very low incidences of, of what we call volatilization of the, of the microorganisms. So if someone's going to come in uh, nowadays, in COVID, post-COVID days, uh, can they expect then that uh, their teeth cleaning will be done with, like you mentioned, the, uh, the old typical standby dental instruments where there's going to be um, manipulation of tools in your mouth and it, it won't be the ultrasound kind of thing? That is my policy. And I think that is generally the recommendation of the Ohio State Dental Board. You know, like anything, there are individuals out there who are um, um, don't necessarily always follow the rules. And, you know, to be honest with you, what we've tried to po- always be a policy is not just to be make sure that we're following the letter of the law, but to do what we know um, from our understanding, from our research, from our training and our experiences, what is safest. And there's no question that the use of those instruments, the, the ultrasonic and the, the profijet, the little mini sandblasters, those are extremely dangerous to use. And so, you know, all this nice equipment is just kind of sitting there idle for the, for the time being. So, yes, I mean, and are there individuals out there doing that? I'm imagining probably yes, but, you know, I think it's dangerous. That's my opinion. Well, and it sounds like it's most dangerous for the uh, for the staff, for the uh, hygienist yeah. and the people yeah. in that room, and uh, and and for other people who come in also. Uh, and which brings me to another question: Is that between patients? Uh, how is your uh, policy or practices changed as far as wiping things down and maybe doing something to make sure the aerosol virus is not there for the next patient? Well, very good. Well, first of all, we've used a surface disinfectant that uh, has been proven to be very effective against 
both uh, bacteria and viruses. And one of the unique things about a, a dental environment and cleaning up is it's not just a matter of, if you were to look under a microscope, it wouldn't be you'd see these little bacteria on the countertop. What you'd see is a little piece of saliva or a little drop of, drop of blood, and the bacteria in there, and a lot of the sanitizers don't really, are not really effective at that. We call the bio burden. And so we found, not we, but dentistry has found, and some of the researchers have found that the best disinfectants are those that are a combination of ethyl alcohol, you know, the kind we drink, you know, but ethyl alcohol in concentrations of over 60% in combination with chlorhexidine. And chlorhexidine is something like a surgical scrub when you see the surgeons scrubbing their hands before uh, procedures. On top of that, as I mentioned earlier, we are now using also the hypochlorous acid, and the hypochlorous acid is a fogger. So we will fog the room between each patient. And that fogger is very, very effective at killing both bacteria and viruses. And it's, it's, it's extremely fast acting. It only takes about 30 seconds. So, and that's actually been kind of a neat thing that, you know, we, you know, we got it specifically because of the COVID-19 infection issue. But we're going to continue to use that ongoing because it's such an easy, effective, and safe way of, of, of getting all those nooks and crannies, you know, the places, how do you wipe... You know, how do you wipe these little corners and how do you get stuff? Well, you fog it, you can get everything. And we also have um, ozone is another um, substance that we we have used now. For even like using, like I use magnifying loops, you know, for seeing up close. How do you clean those? You know, you can't autoclave them. Well, we have we have a little room. It used to be my old dark room in the office. And uh, I got an ozone generator. And ozone is extremely effective at killing, again, both bacteria and um Viruses, and so we now call it the killing room. <laughs> we used to be the, uh, the the uh, the dark room, and so anything like even our shoes, we'll take our shoes off at night. We put those in there. We turn the ozone producer on for thirty minutes, and we come back in the morning, and we know that everything that's there is safe. And just little things that have you know, this has kind of awakened us to a lot of things that we maybe should have been doing before. So between patients, like between patient one yep. and patient two. Uh, what, what's done to the, the area? Is it like wiped down or something? Like yes. the, the it's wiped, or anything? Wiped, or? wiped and fogged. And also we so that all the, okay. the fogger, the fogger again is that, the hypochlorous acid. And so, um, and, and those combinations are both very fast acting. They both were able to kill at a very high rate, uh, a very high level of, of effectiveness within, you know, one to three minutes. The hypochlorous acid is only about 30 seconds. So, um, so it actually makes it actually made things really pretty easy. It's not a difficult process, um, mm-hmm. and we use barriers. We we put physical barriers wherever we can. Mm-hmm. Coverings, you know, we we use on our chairs. We use um, the bags from laundromats. You know, they use that when you get your shirts and things from the laundromat. They have these big bags. Those fit very nicely over our chair, and we've been using those for years. But now the again the incorporation of the only thing that's really new is we have the air purifiers in each one of our rooms. So it, that dramatically reduces the amount of of organisms that will actually ever make it to the ground or to the a countertop or a surface, and then we have the um, the wipe down with the uh, ethyl alcohol and um, uh, chlorhexidine, and then we have the fogger. So we're trying to hit it from a lot of whole lot of different angles. First of all, barriers as much as you can, and then wipe down everything you can and fog everything you can. And it's kind of like probably a little bit of an overkill, but everybody feels good about it, you know. And it's it's not that well, difficult uh, to do. I don't think. Yeah, don't skimp on the overkill. Yeah. Well, uh, no matter, for our listeners, no matter who your dentist is, uh, you now know a little more about what's going on, at least at Dr. Hedgie's office, and feel free to talk to your dentist about these things and uh, be comfortable and, and go out for that. Well, uh, 
Dr. Hedgie, thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us some insight into how we can get our dental work done and still be safe and protected from the COVID-19. You're, you're very welcome, Nick. And just as we talked off air, no matter what we do, you know, we might get sick, but, you know, we, we have to keep living. We have to keep moving on and living and just do everything we can and keep ourselves as safe as we can and, and, and hope for the best. That's it. Uh, stay safe is our big thing. Dr. Hedgie, thank you again. And thank our listeners for listening tonight. Uh, we'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset Sat and drank my fresh mint tea With nothing to 